Good morning, everyone. Great to see all of you. I feel like I haven't been here for a while. I think I just missed last week I was out of town, but it is great to be back in Vermont. And um, it's great to be preaching, and I'm going to start out my message this morning with a little quiz. A little bit of trivia. And uh, I, I just realized as I was thinking through what I'm going to share that all of my uh, examples this morning will work really well for people of a certain age. <laughs> I'm like, holy cow, all these examples are like 30, maybe 25 years old at the, uh, at the youngest. But I'll try to give context for all the slides that I put up. I should have been a little more current, but this will be an education for you youngsters out there, uh, for those under 50. By that, I mean those under 50, exactly. So, all right, do you know these families? Okay, I'm about to pop up some pictures of some TV families, okay? Because through the years, through the years, TV has portrayed a t- like typical all-American families, right? Sitcoms and dramedies and that kind of thing. So do you know these families? Pretty much. <laughs> Leave it to Beaver. Who's that? The Cleavers. The Cleavers, that's right. Leave it to Beaver. You know it's old when it's in black and white, right? All right, someone jumped the gun. <laughs> Katie got that one in the prior slide. She nailed that one. That's right. Who are these guys? That's right. But but what was their name in the actual sitcom? Huxtables. That's right. I was going to ask the question. Can you think of a TV family who didn't have a bisyllabic last name? And then I realized the Huxtables. Yeah, they're right up there. Pretty much every other TV family I can think of, Simpsons, right? Two syllables in the last name. Weird, fun fact. Or maybe not that fun. Or that weird. But uh, so they're, 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 those are fun shows, if you remember these shows, if you've seen them on reruns, youngsters. <laughs> um, but, you know, they didn't necessarily represent real-life families, did they? Sure. Because within... Half an hour, or actually with commercials, 23 minutes of plot development, everything would resolve very nicely, you know? Or maybe sometimes there'd be a part two, you know, in a real cliffhanger episode, but it would get resolved in 46 minutes. But in real life, families are just a little messier than that, right? Have you noticed that sometimes family acts a little differently than you hoped they would? Yeah. I love that these kids are holding the letters J-O-Y and just screaming out loud. Sometimes family puts us in uncomfortable situations. I don't know if you can see that. It's just a girl screaming in terror next to her dad on on a roller coaster. My daughter can relate to this. We brought her to many traumatic moments in amusement parks over the years. Sometimes family can neglect us. (laughs) And sometimes family simply lets us down. I did a little research. No children were actually harmed in the making of this photo. They did get dropped on the beach, but they were fine. And the family themselves actually posted that as a good laugh. But, but the bottom line, 
You know, families, because they're made up of humans, <laughs> have their flaws. Unlike TV, it's not nice and neat. It can be very messy. And not only physical families, but our church family, right? Can have its bumps, can have its messiness. But it doesn't change the fact that we are God's family. Amen? We're God's household, right? Ephesians 2 says in verse 19, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of His household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus Himself as the chief cornerstone. And I love this one. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. You know, you don't often see a lot of exclamation points in Scripture. I love that you got two exclamation points in a row there, right? That we should be called children of God. Exclamation point. And that is what we are. Amen? That's an awesome thing. It's incredible that we are part of the family of God. And it's a huge need that we understand that and that we're connected in family. Amen? And you know our theme for the year, anyone remember what it is? Connected in Christ, right? And uh, we had four components to that, right? P, C, SD, prayer, care, share, dare. I know that sounds too close to PTSD, but that's how I remember it. Prayer, care, share, dare. And today I want to talk about the dare component of that under our connection in Christ theme. And it's to dare to be connected in God's family. Amen? And I'm going to just mention a few short points here on how to be connected in God's family and to dare to be connected in God's family. And and I say dare to be connected because it's easier to not be connected than to be connected, right? It's easy to just relax and let the world kind of hit us and not go out and and strive to be connected. It takes daring to do this. And the first point is dare to get involved. In order to be connected in God's family, we need to dare to get involved. Amen? And in 2 Timothy 2, verse 1, it says, verse 16, May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. This is Paul uh, writing. Because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well in how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. You know, when life gets challenging for all of us, it's so important when people dare to get involved in our lives. You know, we think of the Apostle Paul as this legendary biblical figure, but while Paul was in jail, people weren't thinking, someday people are going to preach sermons about this. Someday you're going to live in the Bible, and every little thing that we do is going to be recorded and we'll be held up in Vermont in the year 2019. It wasn't that. Paul was just living in jail, and it wasn't fun. And what was happening was his brothers and sisters, many were actually ashamed of him 
being in prison. And many had abandoned him. And we're going to look at a scripture about that later. But Paul holds up somebody named Onesiphorus. Why? Onesiphorus dared to get involved with Paul. It says, he searched hard for me until he found me. The implication being, it wasn't easy to find out where Paul was. You couldn't check the internet, hmm, what jail is the Apostle Paul in? You know, where's that prisoner number? He searched hard for me until he found me. What a great testimony to Onesiphorus' level of engagement in God's family. You know, it's interesting. Have you ever been rescued? Has everyone, anyone ever been spiritually struggling and someone come and snatched you from the fire? You know? Have you ever gotten a really timely text that you're just like, man, I needed that. Thank you, brother. Thank you, sister, for getting involved in my life today. You know, I think of... um, I didn't clear this with Kristen, but I think this is okay to share. But just, she shared this before publicly. But in, in, in high school, Kristen had her ups and downs spiritually. She was amazing, but there was a time when she was in a, in a valley, spiritually. And you know what happened? A bunch of her teen friends kind of pursued her and were like, you better talk to your parents about how you're doing or we're going to. <laughs> you know? And that's not what you want to hear as a teen from your friends necessarily. That's not a happy thing to hear necessarily. But Kristen, to her credit, was like, ah. Oh. And I remember we had this great family conversation. She kind of opened up about some things. And it was, it was very healing and I think a springboard for Kristen in a lot of ways to recover spiritually. But it was because some friends of hers decided to get involved in her life. They kind of kicked down the door there and were like, listen, girlfriend, you need to get real, you know, and you need to get real with your folks. You need to get real about where you are. And to her credit, she did. And it helped her a ton. And I'll go ahead and make a plug for camp. Right. These were not um, teens that were in Kristen's local ministry. They were teens that she had made connections with at, at, at church camp. And so the fact that these people who were not even geographically close to Kristen inserted themselves in her life, right? And that's one of the greatest things about camp. You can build these spiritual relationships that aren't confined to locale, you know, geographic constraints. You know, I think about the times when Sue and I went over to some some uh, disciples' homes who are, who are having some issues, like between midnight and 3 a.m., we got a phone call. And we just got out and counseled some people, you know, in the wee hours. And we were happy to do it. And I, I believe so many others would have done that for us. But we, uh, we, <laughs> you're like, what, what ministry were you a part of in Chicago? But I remember bailing people out of jail. <laughs> I've corresponded with a brother who was in prison for over a year, as did many other brothers. Continue to keep up. He was in a, actually in a prison in a different state. We couldn't even, it was very difficult to visit him in a federal prison. But 
And he actually did fantastically well. It was due to something that he had done before he was a disciple, and he was rightfully convicted, and he paid his price as a federal prisoner. And he actually did fantastically in jail, to the point where, like, maybe I need a stint in jail. I mean, he, he, he was just spiritually focused for a year and came out stronger. It was amazing. But it was great to be involved in his life, and along with many other brothers. We didn't abandon him. And it's key. We've got to dare to be involved in one another's lives in order to be connected. Amen? Point two, dare to see yourself with God's point of view. Dare to see yourself through God's eyes and not your eyes and definitely not Satan's eyes. Amen? Amen. Here's another super ancient reference. Anyone know who this is? Yeah. Can anyone name him? Biff. That's right. Biff Tannen. He was the prototypical bully of my youth in uh, the Back to the Future series, right? Has anyone ever been bullied? Anyone ever been bullied? I'm going to tell you one quick bully story from my youth, and you're going to think I'm making it up, but I try not to make things up ever as a disciple, amen? And particularly not when I'm preaching and this is going on to the website. Amen. Uh, yeah, it's just a good policy. Don't lie. But... Uh, this happened to me in sixth grade. It was the first, first week of sixth grade, and there was a large kid who bumped into me, and I'm talking large. He, he, he was over six feet tall in sixth grade. This kid went on to not complete the sixth grade. This kid actually got shipped off to a juvenile detention center within a month. But this was my interaction with this kid. His name was David. And uh, I, I hit him as I was go accidentally as we were both uh, entering into our little in, into our building from lunch, and he said something to me like, "Watch it, you blank blank." Or he said, "Watch it, you little blank." And I said, "You watch it, you big." I just mouthed off to this dude like faster than my brain could process. I talked back to this kid, and he was like, "What?" And I was like, "Oops." <laughs> And before I knew it, it was like a little movie. We were, it was a chase scene. He was chasing me down the halls of my junior high, Haven Middle School. Kristen knows it. And what eventually happened is I was running, looking back over my shoulder, seeing David making his way through the kids. I turned around and I ran into what I thought was a wall, but it was another kid who was legendary. And his name was Mike Mike. That was his reason. Mike Mike would go on to hold the bench press record of our high school in the future. Mike Mike had a gold tooth, and he was wider than he was tall, it seemed like. But in sixth grade, he was just this huge ball. And I hit him, and he didn't move, and he looked at me and smiled, and he grabbed me and picked me up over his shoulders and did one turn and threw me. He helicoptered me and threw me. Meanwhile, David had come upon this. Kids were, in my mind, felt like all the kids, like a circle had formed and they're watching this. And this is in slow motion to me. He spun me and he threw me and I flew through the air. And it felt like slow motion. I hit lockers 
And praise God, I did not hit where the handle of the locker was. I hit in the very nice, cushy, <laughs> whatever, that seemed like tin lockers back then. It didn't hurt at all. I don't know if it was adrenaline, but I just fell, and I hit, and I, I was sitting there at the locker, and there was kind of a gasp, and I didn't know what was going to happen next, and it was silence. And then all of a sudden, Mike Mike, I think Mike Mike was glad he didn't kill me. And he just started laughing. And David, who had chased me, he started laughing. I started laughing, and I just kind of slinked away. (laughs) So I survived that little incident of bullying. But these guys were intense. And if you've ever been bullied, bullying is not fun. Getting bullied is not fun. And the the best bully, (laughs) the most accomplished bully in the world is Satan. Satan is stronger, smarter, and more tenacious than any bully we've ever faced. And what does Satan do to bully us? What are Satan's tactics of bullying us? I think, one, he makes us believe we're weak. He makes us believe we're weak. You guys remember the story of Gideon? Gideon was someone who lived during the time when the Midianites had been persecuting Israel. And so... Uh, every time the Israelites would try to grow crops or do anything with their cattle, the Midianites would come in like a swarm of locusts and take their, burn their crops, take their cattle. And the Israelites were literally living in caves. And in this scripture, we find Gideon threshing wheat in a wine press, which is not what you're supposed to do, but he was doing it to keep out of the, out of the line of sight of the Midianites. And he didn't want to be seen. And so Gideon was basically cowering from the Midianites. And we pick it up in Judges 6 and verse 12. It says, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And keep in mind, Gideon is in a wine press hiding at that very moment. And so Gideon very reasonably says, pardon me, my Lord, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord. I love how... <laughs> how polite Gideon is. But how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. Have you ever felt that way? Where God is saying, greetings, mighty warrior, and you're like, ah, I sure don't feel like a mighty warrior. Yeah. I sure don't feel like a mighty warrior. But being connected in God's family helps us realize who we really are. Amen? In Romans 8.31, we know this scripture, if God is for us, who can be against us? Romans 8.37, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. If the Lord came to you today and said, I am with you, mighty warrior, would you feel like he's being sarcastic? (laughs) Or would you internalize that and go, amen, that's right, that's right. You know, we need family to remind us of who we really are in Christ. We need to be connected in that way. You know, what, what, else, is, what, what else do bully, bullies do? They make us feel marginalized or like an outcast. Like that poor grandma who was on that bench 
20 feet from the rest of the family. I don't know if that's really the case, but the picture's funny to me. I mean, maybe not for the grandma. I hope she was pulled in. But, uh, you know, the bottom line is everyone just about in the Bible who stood up for God was bullied and marginalized when you think about it. The church was Jeremiah, Elijah, Paul, the nation of Israel. Jesus was slandered. He was beaten up. Jesus can relate when we feel marginalized. Amen. He can feel he can relate when we feel like we're outcasts, that we're not part of the family or any family. Yet we are. Amen. Jesus is our big brother. And even if you don't have an actual big brother who's protecting you from David Williams and Mike Mike. (laughs) Jesus is there with you. Amen. How else does Satan bully us? He makes us, have you ever felt unworthy of God's love? Yet the Bible is full of scriptures that tell us God loves us and his love is unconditional towards us. Deuteronomy 14.2 You are a people holy to the Lord your God. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, the Lord has chosen you to be his treasured possession. Hebrews 2.11 Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. How exciting is that? That Jesus is your brother. We're all in this family together. You know, if Mike Mike had been my brother in high school, I would have been bragging about him and saying, Yeah, you know my brother, he can bench press 350. He's got the high school record that will probably never be broken. You know what a Christian could say? Well, my brother conquered death. (laughs) You know, kind of every other accomplishment pales in the face of what your brother has done for you. My brother died for me. It's an incredible family that we're a part of. Amen. Point three, in order to be connected in God's family, we need to dare to be real. Have you ever noticed that family tends to get right to the point? Doesn't pussyfoot around a lot of things? I don't know, maybe that's just my family. My family is Dutch. The Dutch were known, are known, still are known for being very direct. Very direct. My dad was famous for his directness, you know? If you told if if you told my dad you were on a diet, he might he would look you up and down and maybe say something like, "Really?" <laughs> it's brutal. My dad was awesome. I love my dad, but I'm telling you, he was not famous for his tact. He was very direct. He was very real, and you appreciated that in one sense. You always knew where you stood. You knew what he was thinking. But you know, Jesus was very real. Jesus sometimes asked the the disciples, are you still so dull? Ouch. How about the Jesus with the woman in the well? At the well. Not in the well. At the well. You know, Jesus is like, yeah, I know the person you're with is not your husband. You know, in fact, you've had many husbands. And the woman responds, well, I can see you're somebody special. (laughs) 
you're the savior of the world. But Jesus was very, very direct. And we need brothers and sisters to tell it like it is to us in our family. Amen. I'm not advocating tactlessness. (laughs) I'm not advocating willy nilly. Let's tear each other down for the sake of it. But I'm talking about being real with one another and having real truth and depth in our relationships. We know this scripture, Proverbs 27, 6, wounds from, a, wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. What does that mean? It means if you wound me because you're my friend, I can trust that. You're doing it out of love for me. And if all you do in my life is scratch my itching ears and tell me what I want to hear, that's actually not the kind of love that God wants to have characterize our family in Christ. We need to wound each other sometimes for the good of our hearts. It's kind of like using that surgeon's scalpel, right? Hebrews 4, the word is like a scalpel, right? It's precise. It's not a hatchet. It's not, uh, you know, a sledgehammer. But it's, it's, we pull that out at times when someone needs a little help. We need a little wounding to be able to see the truth of something in our lives. We see it all over Scripture, right? Nathan with David. David and Jonathan, Jesus with his disciples, with James and John and Peter in particular, right? There's a lot of directness in spiritual relationships that I believe that God wants us to have and that's modeled for us in scriptures. And I, and I think of the, the men in particular. I think guys in particular can, as we age, we can grow more and more into a stereotype. Of isolation. Particularly in Vermont, there's kind of that stereotype of the rugged individualist, self sufficient. Sure. You know? And I don't think that's what God wants for us as men or women. And it's interesting. Jesus was extraordinarily vulnerable in his relationships, He, he dared to be real with what he was really going through. We know this scripture also from the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus said, Jesus took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with, Zebedee along with him and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. This is Jesus, the hero of the story. The Savior of the world. The Messiah who came to give his life for all. And he's saying, guys, I'm really overwhelmed right now. Wait, wait, wait. What? You're you're my hero. You're, You're God incarnate. And you're overwhelmed? What? What? How should I be right now? If the Savior of the world is sweating drops of blood and asking for help, Guys, come with me. Pray with me. Look at the model that Jesus provides for us. He's not not going, I'll I'll tough this out, guys. I just need to go pray by myself. No. 
He's like, guys, I need you. I'm overwhelmed to the point of death. I believe that's a model for our relationships in family. We need to be real with each other and not isolate ourselves, particularly when we're going through a difficult time. What else is being real? Confessing sin is real, is being real. James 5.16, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Are we open with one another with our spiritual struggles? One of the things I love the most about Kyle is his openness. I love that about Ryan as well. And there's many others I could mention, but there's, there's an endearing quality to someone who's open. Yeah. It bonds you. I believe that's why God says, you don't just confess your sins to me. Confess it to one another. Why? Are you going to be the one to cleanse my sin? No. Now, it helps if you're confessing your sin to someone who does need to forgive you and you get that forgiveness. Amen. But I think that's in there because this is how we get bonded in family. What does it do? We're, we humble ourselves before one another. I'll tell you something. If you haven't confessed your sin, if you've got unconfessed sin that you know about, right? We all sin. I'm not saying we have to confess every single thing. You, but if you've got, you know what it is. Unconfessed sin that you have not told anyone in the family of God. I think you're building up a wall. You're not humbling yourself. You're not... What Jesus did was he humbled himself before his brothers in the garden. He said, guys, I need you. Confession of sin is just a different way of saying, guys, I need you. I need to humble myself before you right now and let you know that I don't have it all figured out. I'm still just a human. I've got my messes. And would would you pray for me about this? And even not, even if you don't need consistent prayer for something, just getting it out there and going, guys, let me just humble myself before you right now and tell you what I did yesterday. Whatever. I hope we're all good at that. I think that should be a characterization of being connected in God's family. That's why it's dare to be connected. Because raise your hand if you love confessing sin. Amen. <laughs> humble sister but most of us hate that most of us would rather ride down church street on a tricycle in a clown suit (laughs) than be completely vulnerable truly utterly vulnerable so I pray that that's something that we decide to be real with amen and I also want to, since we're being real, or I'm trying to be real, I hope that we're all getting involved in these connection groups. Because they're not just to have something fun to do in the summer. There's a real purpose for these things. And so if you're not, and for whatever reason schedule-wise it's insane, that's okay, but at least connect with someone and say, I haven't been able to connect with anyone. Could we do something different? Like, 
There's a way that you can be connected this summer. And my prayer is that that's on your heart. Because we need to dare to be connected this summer. Amen. We need to, and even if it's to the sports group, and that's one of the things we debated as a leadership team, do we make every connection group spiritual? We decided, no, let's just connect. Let's just meet. Because the point is, disciples will get spiritual when we're close with one another. So let's just provide a vehicle to be together. And these groups will turn spiritual as we're more and more connected. Amen. That's the goal. So I pray if you're not in a connection group, we're starting the second phase. I didn't mean to turn this message into a you know a public service announcement for connection groups, but there you have it. I pray that you dare to be connected in that way. And finally, to bring this in for a landing, dare to forgive. To be connected in family, I think we have to dare to Dare to forgive. And this is a touchy subject. It's all over the Bible. Themes of abandonment are all over the Bible. What do we do when we feel abandoned by the very family that is meant to protect us? How do we handle that? Look at, look at some of these scriptures. These are not the most encouraging scriptures you can find in the Bible. Okay. They're in here for a purpose, though. Job 19.14 My relatives have gone away. My closest friends have forgotten me. Amen. You're dismissed. Good night, everybody. That's not what you want to walk out with. Mark 14.50 Then everyone deserted Jesus and fled. How about this from Paul? Do your best to come to me quickly, for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. How about this in verse 16? At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles may, might hear it. You know, I spent probably 27 of my 32 years as a, as a disciple in a large church. And it's interesting about a large church. It hurts when someone abandons you. When someone leaves the fellowship, it hurts. It's painful. But it's nothing like the pain I felt in a small church when someone's left. And understand, as I talk about anyone who's left, I am not making a judgment on their salvation. Whatever their reason, we, if they've left us, cannot help but feel abandoned and feel hurt. Yet, we're in good company Biblically, there's so many as I studied this out, I mean, I could do a whole message on abandonment. It's all over the Bible. It's incredible. Why is it all over the Bible? Because it hurts and it's a real thing that happens to people. It happens in God's family and it's super, super tough. How do we handle this? And I think the secret is. In what Paul said in verse 16, I don't have the verse there, but in the second paragraph, may it not be held against them. This is interesting 
Because in 2 Timothy 4, if you know earlier in the chapter, this is where Paul had just said, I've finished the race. I've been poured out like a drink offering, and I'm about to complete my journey. Paul knows the end is near. And he's saying at the end of his life in a Roman prison, he's saying, people have, many of you deserted me. May it not be held against them. There's a forgiveness. There's a, and how do you get to that place at the end of your life? I think you get to that place by, in the middle of your life, the beginning of your spiritual life, three quarters in your spiritual life, you're consistently forgiving. And you're trusting God. And you're praying for those who have left. No matter how raw it is. No matter how hurt you might be. I think we got to keep these folks on our prayer lists. In our heart. Continue to love them. They, they're not a part of our lives the way we would like them to be. And, but perhaps God will turn their hearts later. And perhaps they'll return to this fellowship. What we care about is that they and God are doing great. Amen? And it's not even so much about us. But let's pray for them and have a forgiving heart. And dare to forgive in that way. Amen? I want to close with this. Um, actually, before I do that, what's interesting, I was just back in Chicago this last week, and in our old ministry there, there's probably three couples who have come back to our ministry group who had been gone for decades. Decades. And these were important couples. Some, one of the couples was a couple who reached out to the person who now leads the entire Chicago church in the Midwest and was one of, is one of the leading figures in our family of churches. That couple had reached out to him and his wife in a mall in suburban Chicago and changed his life some 30 years ago. And they had left and now they're back. And so me, when I'm walking back into the, the Chicago church and seeing, I'm like, seeing these couples, I'm like, it's just, it's balm for the soul. Amen. It's like, that is so cool. And they're giving hugs, and I'm, and I'm like, oh, this is, it's like a celebration. It feels like a little taste of heaven. It's like a reunion, you know? Let's pray for that. For everyone that we can think of who may have left for whatever reason. Let's pray for their spiritual health and well-being. Amen? Closing this out, this is an interesting quote from someone named Paul Pearsall, a neurologist and author. He says, our most basic instinct is not for survival, but for family. Most of us would give our own life for the survival of a family member, yet we lead our daily life too often as if we take our family for granted. Let that not be said about us. Amen? Let's not take our physical family or our spiritual family for granted. Jesus died to give us this spiritual family. Let's appreciate that. You know, when I I had a heart attack a couple months ago, and man, was I incredibly grateful for my 
physical family. Amen. But I was so grateful for my spiritual family here in Burlington, especially Dr. Tando, who visited me, you know, doc, uh, Nurse Kafka. You know, it's incredibly comforting to have spiritual family hovering around the hospital you're in. It's really a joy, you know, getting visits. For, I don't want to start naming everyone because I'm leaving. But the visits from the hospital, the texts, the prayers. Guys, the point is, sooner or later, you're going to need family. You're going to need it. I was hoping not to have needed it like I needed it two months ago. But I was so glad for my family. And let's remember that Jesus died to make us his family. Let's not let something momentous have to remind us of how important family is. Let's dare to be connected in his family every day. Amen? Amen.